Well, we aren't exactly sure who the whistleblower was, but we know who the accusation was made against. The Apostle Paul. And here was the accusation. Listen. Men of Israel, help. This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and he has defiled this holy place. Now, The accusation was false, but it was weighty nonetheless. It was the very accusation that got Paul sent to jail and eventually transported to Rome where he wrote the letter of Ephesians from. See, if you were to have gone to the temple around the time that Paul was living, here's what you would have found. You would have found four courts that surrounded the Holy of Holies. The outermost court was called the court of the Gentiles. It was as far as you could go if you were a Gentile. Next in was the court of women. It was as far as you could go if you were a Jewish woman. Next was the court of men. The farthest you could go if you were a Jewish man. And then finally, you had the court of the priests. Each court got closer and closer to the Holy of Holies or closer and closer to God. And each court had more requirements that were demanded of the people in order to enter. So fewer and fewer people could get closer and closer to God. This was a world that was built around division. It was a world that was built around an us versus them way of thinking about the world. The haves and the have-nots, the the in and the out. And if you were to have walked up to that temple in the first century, what you would have found is an inscription on one of the stones that read something like this. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and the enclosure. Anyone caught doing so will have himself to blame for what follows. Death. And many of the Jewish people believed that the temple would remain profaned until the person that violated the sacredness of the temple was put to death. Now you lay on top of this the prayer that many Jewish men would have prayed every single morning. Here was their prayer, the blessing that they prayed over their life when their head popped off the pillow. Threefold blessing. God, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile or a Greek. God, I thank you that I'm not a slave. And God, I thank you that I'm not a woman. That was the prayer that they prayed every single morning. But 2,000 years ago, Jesus unleashed a power into the world that changed everything. And Paul wants to call that power to the mind of the Ephesian believers as they gather under the name of Jesus. See, we don't know who the whistleblower was that called out the Apostle Paul, but we do know who he said Paul brought into that temple illegally. Acts chapter 21, verse 29. For they'd previously seen Trophimus, the... Whom? Ephesian. Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Trophimus, a man from Ephesus. 
Which makes me wonder if this is the inciting incident behind what Paul will write next in this letter to the Ephesian believers. See, next week we'll read in verse 13 of chapter 3, he says to this church, I ask you not to lose heart over what is being suffered for you. And I wonder if Trophim has brought back word. This is what's happened. And Paul wants to write to the church. And he wants to say, that's not the way that we do things. That's not the way our community works. He doesn't want what happened at the temple in Jerusalem to shape the way that they live as a church in Ephesus. So if you have your Bible, will you open with me to Ephesians chapter 2. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, it's page 998 in that Bible. If you're in Resonate, it's in the chair back right in front of you. And we're going to be focusing on verses 11 through 22 this morning. And as you're turning there, let me catch you up if you haven't been with us over the last few weeks, or maybe you forgot where we've been. We're in this series called Revision, and we're asking God through the book of Ephesians to give us a new vision for ourselves and for him and for life and together as a community of believers. Week one, we said that he's given us a revised identity. Week two, we said we have a revised vision for growth. Week three, we said we have a revised story. And this week, we're going to look at what it means to have a revised unity. If you're following along, I'm going to start in verse 14, but we're going to look at verses 11 through 22 in their entirety this morning. But verses 14 to 16 is going to set an anchor for our time in the scriptures today. Here's what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus in roughly A.D. 62 from a Roman jail cell. Here's what he says. For he, speaking about Jesus himself, is our peace. He is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There's this play on words in verse 16 that Jesus through the cross kills the idea of an enemy, kills hostility. He begins this section though with the word peace. He himself is our peace. And if you were to read through verses 11 through 22, you'll see that word four times. And when we say peace in the English language, typically what comes to our mind is an absence of conflict. That, that's peace. But to a Jewish mind or to a first century reader of this text, they would have thought something a little bit different. See, for them, peace literally meant the weaving back together of frayed parts. The bringing the pieces of life that have been scattered through pain, through wounds, and bringing them back together into one whole. You might think of peace as wholeness or shalom or flourishing. And what Paul says is when that peace happens inside of you, when your frayed parts are woven back together, it doesn't just happen between you and God. When there's peace with God, there's also peace with other people. See, relationship with God is never intended to live only on a vertical plane. It was always designed to be horizontal as well. And so Paul says, he, Jesus, is creating one new man, a new type of human, a new way to be human. And that new way to be human gives birth 
to a whole new way to be community. Yeah, new, human, new humanity gives birth to a new community. But we have to let the weight of the first century sit on us a little bit. We have 2,000 years of history of grappling with this and, and talking about it and thinking about it. They would not have had a barometer for that. For a Jew to sit next to a Gentile in church would have been awkward. It would be like a Jew and a Palestinian gathering for worship today. It would be like a, a Hutu and a Tutsi gathering under the same roof to worship the same God. It would be like a Republican and a Democrat getting together for worship. Or, 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 it would be like a 49er fan and a Chiefs fan lifting their hands together in praise of the same God. It would have been, well, awkward. But when Paul gives the the ethos, the DNA of the church, listen to what he says in Galatians chapter 3. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ. Now, remember, what was the blessing that the Jewish man would say over his life every morning? God, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile or a Greek. God, I thank you that I'm not a slave. God, I thank you that I'm not a female. And what Paul does in one sentence is undermines a whole way of thinking. He says, no, 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 no. In the church, you are equal. And your equality will lead to your unity. And your equality is both in position and function. There's no hierarchy in the church. And Paul wants to invite the church uniquely to a new way of seeing the world. And so he has to give them really specific instructions and reasoning for why they can live together in unity because they had no barometer, nothing to compare this to. This was brand new. And so in the scriptures we're going to look at today, Paul's going to give them a new attitude, a new bond, a new foundation, and a new, I changed the last bullet if you're following along in the outline in the worship folder, a new dwelling. Those four things, he says, are brand new because of what Jesus released into the world. Listen to the first one, verses 11 through 12. Paul writes this. He says, therefore, so in light of the new story that you have, in light of being people of grace and mercy, made alive in Christ and you were dead, remember, he says, that at one time, You Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. There are only two commands given in the first three chapters of Ephesians. They are both in these verses right here. And they are both the same command. And they are both in yellow behind me. What's the command? Remember. Remember. Ephesian church, remember. He says two things. That you were at once far off. 
There was a time when you were on the outside looking in that you weren't the people of God. You weren't under the promises of God. You were looking in at the blessing of God as outsiders. Remember that. Never forget that, the Apostle Paul says to the church. And second, he says, you were without hope. You were without hope. And he wants to call them to a different way of being, a different way of interacting. He wants them to remember that this is all by grace. So verse 13, he'll say, you were brought near. It wasn't your action. It was God's blessing. It's a passive voice. Here's what he wants to do to the church. He wants to give them a new attitude. One, that is not shaped by hubris or pride or accomplishment, but one that is shaped by humility. I mean, think about it. Most other religious systems are built around some form of ascension. Learn certain things, do certain things, climb up that ladder just a little bit more, and eventually you will get to the point where you can enter in. Christianity flips all of that on its head. It's not how high can you go in order to enter. It's actually how low are you willing to go? Will you trust that it's all grace? That it's all mercy? That it's all God? Because it's not ascension, but descension or humility that's actually the entry point into the life of faith. And when that happens, when humility becomes the ethos of a group of people, there are some things that start to die, and it's a beautiful thing. See, here's a few things that die. Number one, favoritism. Or, or we might say religious elitism dies at the hands of humility. I love the way that the Apostle Paul wrote it in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. He said, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. As if like maybe there's a, a, a footnote. Um, he said, I'm sorry, but you're no big deal. <laughs> don't think of your gifting. Don't think of your what you contribute to the body more highly than you ought. He goes on to write, that will actually derail community. Second thing that dies, James writes about this. In his letter to the churches, he says partiality dies or favoritism dies. The idea that somebody might be better than another person because of their background or their bank account. This is a totally new community where we are all on equal footing together in Christ. And if elitism die and partiality dies, you know what else dies? Comparison. Because we're not measuring ourselves against each other. We're simply trying to walk together by faith in Jesus. And he's growing each one of us. And that happens at different paces. And that's okay. And you know what happens when elitism die and favoritism dies and comparison dies? You know what comes to life? Welcome. Welcome. A posture towards people who are far off where our hearts are open to them. And there's a desire to see them come into the fold. Many of you know that my family and I moved from Colorado here to California back in August. And so our kids in August had their first day at their brand new school. And my wife Kelly and I are just praying that they would meet friends quickly and it would be like instant connections, love at first sight, you know, that whole thing. And so we went to pick them up after their first day and 
our oldest son was in tears. And I knew immediately it didn't go well. And so he told me, oh, nobody played with me on the playground today. And I thought to myself, those jerks. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I didn't, I didn't think that. I didn't think that. I just seen if you're listening. No. And so... And my father's heart was broken. But, but, here's what I know. That experience, my prayer, will shape him into a more tender, a more loving, a more gentle, a more aware child of the kids that are on the outside. The, the kids that are outside of the friendship ring, that that he might be a person that brings people into the community. And what Paul wants to write to the church at Ephesus is don't forget where you've come from because when you have a heart of humility and you remember where you've come from, you view everybody who's not there yet in a different way. He wants the church to have that heart. And here's how he goes on, verse 13. He says this, but now, right now, in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near, passive, brought near, by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, he has broken down, or made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. See, my my gut sense is that when we read that he has broken down the dividing wall of hostility, there's something probably in us in our cultural political moment where our mind immediately goes to a wall that we debate about building. So I'll just get the elephant out into the room and go, there it is, right? As I was talking to our Spanish language pastor, Esteban Tapia, about this passage, I love the way that he said it. Here's what he said. He said, you may be pro-wall at the border, and that's completely fine. But, as followers of Jesus, we should all be no wall in our hearts. And I thought, that's it. That's exactly it. Politics aside, the walls in our heart cannot stand because of what Jesus has done. And notice what Paul says. This is a new community that's built around the blood of Christ. See, every other community that was present in the world at that time was built around shared blood. Do we come from the same family? Are we part of the same tribe? Are we part of the same nation? And what Paul is unleashing, what Jesus unleashed into the world is a totally new community built around a new bond. And the bond is not shared blood anymore. The bond is shed blood. He's who we circle around. He's who we worship. He's who we Lift high. And it's not the blood that runs through your veins that gives you the core of your identity anymore. It's actually the blood that was spilled on Calvary. So Paul will go on to write in verse 18. Jump down there with me. Follow along. For through him we both, both Jews and Gentiles, people that wouldn't have sat in the same pews together, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Same access. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So please notice what Paul wants to do. 
He wants to call the church to examine their closest identity affiliations. What nation are you a part of and what family do you belong to? And he wants to say as a Jesus follower, those two things are still important and they're still markers of who you are. They're just secondary. See, you are a Christian before you're an American and you're a Christian before you're, well, if you're like me, before you're a Paulson. That we pledge allegiance to the kingdom and we find our family in the church. This was a whole new way of thinking, a whole new way of being. And please hear me, please hear me on this. What Paul is not going for is uniformity. That's not what he wants. He's calling for a collection, a unity, even amongst differences. That around the throne of God, we will be praising Him and worshiping Him for all of eternity. Every tribe and every tongue and every nation with their unique glories brought before Jesus to worship Him as King. That's how this whole thing ends. You know that, right? That's where it's heading. And what the Apostle Paul is calling the church to is just start today. There's two implications that I see. Number one, if we enter the community through shed blood, Jesus' forgiveness, then we have to be willing to offer that to others. We have to be a community who says we will forgive those who wrong us, even when it really stings and it really hurts. And sometimes that's a journey. I get it. But as followers of Jesus, we need to be willing to take that journey. As Apostle Paul will write to the church at Colossae, he'll say this. Bearing with one another, which by the way, I love this command in the scriptures because sometimes all you can do is bear with people, right? Bear with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. That's who we are. That's who we are. But second, uh, in light of Martin Luther King Day a few weeks ago, and this text today, I was just struck by what Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King said 57 years ago. He said, it's appalling that the most segregated hour in America is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. And I thought to myself, I wish, I wish we'd made more progress in the last 57 years. I, I wish that this weren't still the case in so many churches around the country. But I think God is doing something unique here. Will you lean in for just a moment? A number of years ago, Pastor Dennis and Pastor Esteban Tapia began our Spanish language service. They're meeting down in the amphitheater right now, worshiping Jesus in Spanish. And their goal when they created that service was that we would be one church in two languages. And I just want you to know that's still the goal. That's still the prayer. And in order to get there, truly get there, we might need to lay down some of our preferences and we might need to lay down some of our desires. But friends, that will be a worth it journey to be a church that looks more like heaven. Amen? I think we have a great opportunity in our current moment right now. And I think Jesus is calling us forward for the glory of his name. And listen to the way Paul goes on. He says this. After claiming that we were built around 
shed blood, not just shared blood. He says he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And he may go, well, how did Jesus do this? How did Jesus break down that wall that kept people separate and divided the ins and the outs, the haves and the have-nots? He says, by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances. Um, literally, in, in English, this word could be translated dogma. Now, if you're a student of the scriptures, you're going, he abolished the law? Didn't Jesus talk about the law somewhere? Yes, he did. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, amongst other places. And there he said, I did not come to abolish the law. So what's going on here? See, most scholars think that in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is talking about the moral law because he goes on to talk about behavior, things like anger and lust and honesty. And he's saying, I'm not, I didn't come to demolish or to abolish the moral law. But here people think that Paul is talking about the law that was used to function in ceremonial cleanliness or food customs or circumcision, the kind of ordinances or dogma that was used to keep some people in and some people out. It functioned a lot like, well, the the wall, (laughs) That's what Paul is talking about here. And what he's saying is that while Jesus didn't abolish the law as a guideline for behavior, he did abolish it as a means to salvation. That law is gone. Yeah, that he, Jesus, built and is built, or the church is built on the foundation of the apostles, verse 20, and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself is the chief corner stone. So when the apostle Paul writes to the church about being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, we might summarize that as just simply being built on the New Testament scriptures, the teaching of Jesus, the teaching of the early followers of Jesus who were called to proclaim his good news. And did you know they had one central message when they proclaimed it? They said, this is the new law, one word that replaced all of those other words. Listen to the way that Paul writes about that in Romans chapter 13, verse 8 and 9. He says this. Oh, no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law for the commandments. And then he's going to list four out of the 10 commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall what? Say it with me, church. Love your neighbor as yourself. Yes, this law was replaced by one word. Love. Love. That's our foundation. The scriptures are our foundation. Jesus is our cornerstone. And in the season where things are changing in our church, I mean, you have the first new lead pastor that this church has had in 26 years. Inevitably, there are things that change. I'm different, right? There are more things that will remain the same. I assure you of that. We will be a church that has Jesus as our cornerstone. We will be a church that holds the scriptures high that teaches out of the scriptures and that say, we say love will be our 
foundation. Those things are not changing. And when Jesus is the cornerstone, when he is at the center of it all, we can disagree on peripheral theological issues and still come together and have fellowship and find our unity in the one in whom we worship, Jesus. Jesus. Here's the way that Paul ends this section. Talking about Jesus, he says, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You think he has his, in his mind the temple that he was arrested for violating. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And remember, the temple is still functioning. The old covenant is still being enacted. Sacrifices are still being offered. And so when Paul writes to the church and says, you're a new temple, a new dwelling place of God, this is a significant statement, one that changes the entire game. And remember, I changed that from goal to dwelling. There's a new dwelling for the Spirit. And it's not a place. It's a people. It's a people. See, in the Jewish mind, the temple was the place that earth and heaven overlapped. It was the place where people encountered God. And what Paul is saying is that is no longer happening in a place. That's happening now in a gathering of people that when you come together, certainly the spirit of God, if you're a follower of Jesus, the spirit of God lives inside of you uniquely, singularly you. But when we gather together, the spirit of God or the presence of God is hosted in our midst in a unique way. It's the reason that the author of Hebrews will say, don't give up the habit of meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Keep gathering. Keep being the church together. Keep worshiping and raising your voice together because as Paul would say, you are being built into a dwelling place for God by His Spirit. See, in all of this, what we see is we can either be people who build division or we can be people who become a dwelling. But we cannot be both. But we cannot be both. We will either be people who say to God, we want to walk together. We want to forgive one another. We want to worship together. We want to focus on the things that unite us, not the things that divide us, or, and become a dwelling place for God, or we will be divided, and God's Spirit will not bless that. I think Jesus might want to ask us today, Emmanuel Faith, do you want to be the kind of church that answers my prayer? I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He's looking at the disciples and then he's praying for you that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. See, the church that is one is the church that Jesus uses to win the world, the church he unleashes his power through. See, unity is the answer to Jesus' prayer. And it's the way to unleash his power. So as a church, we get the chance to end our time together in worship today by celebrating the Lord's table.
a picture of our unity. But Jesus would command us, don't go hastily to the table. Take some time and examine yourself. And I just want to invite you to examine three or five things. Hold these before yourself. And maybe you take a picture of this or write them down so you can look at it later on this week. That This text would press on us. As we go to this table, would you pray for unity? Pray for unity in our church. Pray for unity in our city. Would you commit to forgiving people that have wronged you and asking for forgiveness for those whom you have wronged? Would you make it an intention to say, I'm going to pursue people? Maybe people that don't look like me, talk like me, think like me, or even believe like me. I want to be that kind of person that God would use to welcome those who are far off. Would you invest your time, your talents, and your treasure in this community of faith? And as you do that, Jesus says, that's the kind of church, that's the kind of person that I pour my power through. Would you expect that he would do abundantly more than what you could think or dream or imagine?